Hello and welcome to Future Fundamentals, the podcast direct from the Chief Investment Officer at Deutsche Bank's private bank that takes a long-term look at investment challenges. And today we're looking at an area that promises to have a significant impact on both investment opportunities and the planet, sovereign carbon credits. Through the sovereign carbon credit market, nature gets a price because the current price we as a global community using for nature is zero. Sovereigns will begin to realize the value of their natural assets and actually generating income flows into the country. And that's when we would hope that things like deforestation starts to stop. So far, only about 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions are covered by carbon credits. But that looks likely to change after an agreement at COP26 last year covering sovereign credits. The agreement has the potential to be a major step forward in mobilising capital towards mitigating climate change. But it isn't a simple story. So it's good that I have two Deutsche Bank people steeped in markets and climate economics with me to help us understand it. Markus Muller is Chief Investment Officer for ESG at Deutsche Bank and Global Head of the Chief Investment Office at the Deutsche Bank Private Bank. Markus, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Guy. Great to be with you again. And Claire Kustar is Global Head of ESG and Sustainable Finance for Fixed Income and Currencies at Deutsche Bank. Claire, welcome to Future Fundamentals. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. So, Marcus, uh, let's start with a sort of obvious, simple question. of What are sovereign carbon credits? So, Guy, the main goal of sovereign carbon credits is to limit, um, on the one side, deforestation, for instance, making them into financial assets that empower, also in this context of deforestation, rainforest nations to protect their forests on the one side and gain financial support in doing so. And based on what I just have said, we can extend this also, for instance, to the ocean. And then we would call it blue carbon credits. Right. So, so traditional carbon credits that have been around for, for, for a while, where, where companies can buy credits to sort of offset their, their carbon emissions, what's the, the relationship between those and these sovereign carbon credits? So the difference is, um, first of all, that sovereign carbon credits are really provided by nations, by countries, by sovereigns, while Carbon credits so far in the voluntary carbon market are traded between companies. So the approach is completely a different one. Because when we think about the nations and when we think about the planetary triple crisis, so the degradation of our nature and the environment we are depending on and living in, then it means that nature is hosted or is embedded within these countries, right? Or the countries are embedded in the nature. And this is a difference that that the nature is really in the nations they can give these carbon credits to the market. While the companies, they do not own really nature. They are not host of nature. They try to trade among themselves the right to emit further carbon. Just to... Um add on what Marcus is saying, I think the, the important to, to thing to understand when you think about what sovereign carbon uh, credits are, it's important to understand that the way that these sovereign carbons are, credits are verified and the, the mechanism for confirming that sovereigns can get nature-based payments against their carbon credits under the UNFCCC and the Article 5 of the Paris Agreement 
you need to baseline the entire forest. I mean, we're, when we look specifically at the Red Plus, obviously blue carbon is slightly different, but when we look at the Red Plus framework, it is looking at mapping the baseline of the entire forest of the sovereign and measuring specific reductions on deforestation and forest management and conservation as it relates to that entire forest. So it's, it's very important to understand that, one, because uh, these, car- these sovereign carbon credits are actually awarded based on defined achievements in terms of those reduction of deforestation and conservation of the forest, uh, but they also are measured within the territorial borders of the sovereign, right? So you, you avoid um, the, the risk of leakage as much as possible, right? Because you're not looking at, you know, a small project plot in, in one area uh, of a sovereign or jurisdiction, uh, which maybe you're doing good and you're reforesting and managing, you know, that, that plot of land. Effectively, meanwhile, the next plot is actually being, uh, you know, torn down. So I think that's an important aspect of, of sovereign carbon credits and, uh, you know, has a, has a high integrity because of that, because you're looking at the entire yeah. uh, jurisdiction within the sovereign space. And, and sorry, maybe, maybe, Guy, so I have, maybe you have opened all the Pandora's box in, in asking us this question. But That's fine. I'll if, just sit here if, and listen to you too. <laughs> if I take this, what Claire just has said, and transfer this again into the corporate world, then we have to say that companies get, in this context of the company carbon credits, a set number of credits which decline over time and they can sell and access to other companies. Carbon credits then in this context create an incentive for the companies to reduce their carbon emission. And you, you see the difference between what, what Claire and I now discussing. The one remains really between the companies and the other one takes the nature into account and the nations, the sovereigns who owns these natural assets, the global commons, if you want. I think we should probably just explain, by the way, what UNFCCC Red Plus stands for. Yes, so we have always these acronyms, right? And you need maybe to learn a complete new language, but also the entire change towards a new economic model requires a kind of environmental literacy. So let's start with these abbreviations. So it's the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So in short, UNFCCC. And Red Plus means reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And, and the plus relates to the overall conservation and management, uh, sustainable management of the forest. So is that the sort of fundamental difference between these new, uh, these sovereign credits and the, uh, and the old ones? Is that the, 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 now that there's a full proper governance framework for sovereign credits, they, they have the power to do much more? But it has always been a governance framework uh, in, in place, right? I mean, if you look at the UNFCCC um, and you look at, uh, you know, the, the sort of governance around that and the, the verification um, and the transparency around what's posted on the UNFCCC website, um, this is not necessarily new. I think what, what was achieved at COP26 last year and what hopefully will be, you know, more fully fleshed out in, in the COP27 negotiations is how these quote-unquote sovereign carbon assets can actually be traded and used by countries um, to meet their NDC objectives, their national determined contribution objective under the Paris Agreement and and the framework of how that's going to be implemented, Uh, where, where really if you look at sovereigns who are generating these carbon assets and have a 
uh, a positive carbon footprint, um, or I should say a negative carbon footprint, can actually provide these carbon credits to uh, sovereigns who have, um, you know, inherent emissions. I mean, the, the, the global north um, is a highly industrialized uh, economy uh, versus, for example, a number of the uh, nations uh, which are producing these red uh, plus credits, which are, you know, mainly rainforest nations. Uh, with a negative carbon footprint. Would it be right to say, uh, Marcus, that the that what this what, what we're talking about now has a sort of what changes things is the sort of nature gets to sort of be a central part of all of this. Um, taking such a framework into account gives nature and its systemic ability to deliver ecosystem services a right in the economic policy decision. Because suddenly, through the sovereign carbon credit market, nature becomes get, gets a price. Because the current price we as a global community using for nature is zero. And now suddenly it becomes a price because of its ability to sequester carbon, to absorb carbon, to store carbon, and, and to become with this a tool for us to mitigate the effects of climate change. And I think just to add to that, to that, point, right? I don't think, um, certainly not all sovereigns have, have looked at their um, natural assets as, uh, as an asset, right, as an asset of value, um, you know, because there has been no significant price for it at scale, right? We have obviously the, the voluntary carbon markets, but if you look at the voluntary carbon markets, most of those currently are small-scale, you know, project type um, reforestation project or, or mitigation projects. And the entire value of the far, uh, voluntary carbon market now is roughly about a billion last year in terms of ter- turnover. And the, you know, the equivalent price of a voluntary carbon credit can range from anywhere from you know, a couple of dollars to maybe at most $25, $30 um, per ton. If you look at the regulated markets, uh, and, the, and the biggest one now is the EU ETS, uh, European regulated markets, this is a market which is now roughly 800 um, to 900 uh, billion uh, this year, right? And the price of carbon in that regulated market is ranged between 60 to 80 dollars, um, or euros, I should say, a ton. So you can see the scale of the difference in price. Um, and I think the interesting part of sovereign is the minute that you can make it a, a truly a scalable, uh, uniform uh, type market and one where you can actually trade it with uh, entities like sovereigns, but you know, corporates can also um, uh, look to buy these, uh, these sovereign carbon credits, you get scale in the market and you get money and, and uh, value flowing into that. And that's the point in time where sovereigns will, will truly begin to realize the value of their natural assets and actually generating income flows into, uh, into the country. And that's when, you know, we would hope that uh, things like uh, deforestation and, uh, and land use uh, start to, to, to stop um, and we start preserving our, our natural assets. And this is very important as, as this really gives then um, nature this right, which, which hasn't been the case so far. And for me, as an economist, it's a huge step in the direction of a nature-compliant um, um, economic model. And on the other side, um, the nations, the nations which really host those natural assets, get also profits from it. Because in the end, it's also the question about inclusion, global inclusion of the global south as 
as they have been so far left behind. Let's to be honest. Yeah. So that that that's a really interesting point. Does it does it have the the potential to have a wider then economic uh, impact in terms of the way uh, big organisations like the World Bank or the IMF or or, or whatever or the, the things like green bonds and all that sort of stuff. So for for a sort of much wider. I know that's a rather general point, but a much wider sort of impact on the way the the financial relationship work between the global north and the global south, for instance. I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here. I think that's uh, I think that's exactly the, the 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 argument we're making, right? And I think, um, uh, you know, I don't know if if you saw it at uh, at the New York Climate Week about two three weeks ago. Um, uh, Kristalina from the IMF uh, made a statement around the IMF accepting carbon credits in repayment of debt obligations. So I think this is really telling about where the direction of travel is in terms of. Um, whether it be the IMF or the World Bank or actually sovereigns themselves, um, actually recognizing that these carbon credits and you know, sovereign, I think, is, is the one we're focused on here because of the scale, because of the sovereign-to-sovereign relationship. Um, but I think it's really telling when you have the head of the IMF uh, making these sorts of statements that it is beginning to be recognized that these are assets that need to be valued properly and they could actually be part of the solution for how we decarbonize as a, uh, you know, a global ecosystem uh, because we need, you know, all the, all the tools in the workshop to get there. Um, we should obviously make all the steps uh, that we need at the corporate level and sovereign level to decarbonize the industrial base, but we also need to recognize that nature and the ability of nature as a carbon sink um, uh, through reduced deforestation through afforestation through conservation management of the forest is another very, very important tool. And we need to actually value those services properly. Well, those nations, A, we, we have many, many debt burdens there as well. And I think the special drawing rights, this current tool which the IMF is using, can be really supplemented by um, or, or supported by this sovereign carbon credit aspects, especially in a time where we see a strengthening of the US dollar, where we see a deterioration of um, globalization to a certain degree and the question about how it will develop further and um, the question how those countries can develop further. So this is one, one important part. The second important part, the global south is predominantly dependent on the question of energy transition how to finance this energy transition, but also how to finance their own NDCs, nationally determined commitments, which they have given at the COPs for reducing their carbon emissions. How to finance this while you have at the same time a high debt burden. And then this is something which the World Bank says can reduce, so the several carbon credits, can reduce the implementation costs of the NDCs by up to 50% for those countries. Is there a danger at all that it just becomes, you know, we're just buying and selling nature in, 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 a, in a non-advantageous way? Yeah, so therefore this, this framework is important. And therefore, um, Claire and I, we, we have also published this paper about this because we really believe that the UNFCCC Red Plus framework is one step in, in the right direction as it is really something um, which gives sovereignty to the nations to build their own systems, but on the other side, which has also clear defined goals, because it should not be just trade of indulgency, right? It should be really something which is meaningful and which which is productive. And, and I think that 
this has really the appeal to become something like this. My perspective is if there is an efficient way um, to reduce carbon emissions through reduced deforestation and through management of forests that actually absorbs carbon in a, an efficient way where we not only have the na nature benefit, uh, we have all the ancillary benefit of protection of biodiversity, uh, supporting local communities, then that's absolutely something we should be doing. Claire, I forgive a, a, a potentially very stupid question, but is it an, is it a, 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 an investment opportunity for people? I mean, I think it depends what you do with, with the carbon credit, right? So I think uh, very often carbon credits uh, are used for offsetting. Um, so, you know, you're emitting uh, carbon and you're, you're looking to offset that carbon. And so you retire the carbon. Um, that's a very fundamental premise of the, of the carbon credit uh, market. Um, you can certainly look at it as an investment uh, from an investment perspective uh, where you, you know, you're taking a view that, okay, you're not going to retire the carbon credit, but you're actually going to hold it, you know, for a certain period of time until, you know, the time that either you may retire it or you might look to sell it to somebody, you know, another party who themselves are looking to use that carbon credit to retire it. So, yeah. so yes, absolutely. You can use it. You can look at it from an investment perspective as well. And we, we've certainly seen that in the compliance market, uh, the EU ETS market, um, that trades, you know, almost like a rates market. It has got an upward contango uh, curve, and and people do buy credits to invest in that until until such time as they're retired. But we also have to say, guy, um, that that the voluntary car market, for instance, have so far failed, right, to to raise material amounts of capital in context of what is required. However, with um, with a rule book now largely agreed under the Article Six. From, from Glasgow, so the Glasgow agreement we, we are talking about, many of the compliance risks previously associated with voluntary purchases of the carbon um, could be removed. And we see now really institutional um, clients like insurance companies, asset managers, pensions funds, more specialist investors like impact or blended finance funds, development investments like development or export credit agencies, etc., digesting this topic and understanding this topic further. So there, there is really the case, but we never should forget why we need to do this and why we're doing this. And we've touched on this during the Nature-Based Solution podcast. It's following. We need yeah. three steps in order to, to get it sorted out. It's A, technological advantage. It's B, doing what we do differently, consuming less. And this, thirdly, give nature a right in this development and, and get the price of nature, the systemic value of nature articulated. Because trading nature, we are doing already now based on our GDP-oriented model. We need to now get one step further. So let me ask uh, both of you, uh, we are, you know, we, this is a good news story, right? We, we've got to where we are. What, what do you hope for in terms of sort of next steps and, 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 and the future, Marcus? Yeah, so I think that the COP27 Egypt will really give the next level of clarity in, in the sovereign carbon credit market and that we really discuss and decide on implementation. We need now to go beyond pledges. We need now to implement what we have discussed through the last years at the conference of the parties. We need really to, to make this uh, integral part of, of our economic and financial market system. And lastly, we always should be guided by the question, what should we have done 
in 2022 in Egypt in order to understand without any bias of today um, what, what the necessity is, where we have to work on. Yeah, and I, I think what I would add is, you know, assuming uh, we, we finish COP27 and, and the mechanics uh, of implementation of Article 6 are, are finalized and agreed, then what I would love to see is some, some leadership from institutions like the IMF, like the World Bank, like the EU, in terms of actually leading the way to, um, to purchase and, and monetize these sovereign credits, because um, I think that will give, uh, you know, speed and scale to... Um, to, to this, you know, in, entire uh, process that we need to have implemented, which is which is the the transfer of, of funds to these global south countries to protect their natural assets. Well, listen, thank you both uh, very much on that. It's been uh, it's been fascinating to find out uh, more about an area which I think quite a lot of people probably don't know an awful lot about just yet. Um, if all that's done is wet your appetite for more information, you can find it at Deutsche Wealth. Dot com, including the report that uh, Marcus and Claire have written on this subject. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and see you next time. In Europe, Middle East and Africa, as well as in Asia Pacific, this podcast may be considered marketing material, but this is not the case in the US. No assurance can be given that any forecast or target can be achieved. Forecasts are based on assumptions, estimates, opinions and hypothetical models which may prove to be incorrect. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Performance refers to a nominal value based on price gains and losses and does not take into account inflation. Inflation will have a negative impact on the purchasing power of this nominal monetary value. Depending on the current level of inflation, this may lead to a real loss in value, even if the nominal performance of the investment is positive. Investments come with risk. The value of an investment can fall as well as rise, and you might not get back the amount originally invested at any point in time. Your capital may be at risk. The services described in this podcast are provided by Deutsche Bank AG or by its subsidiaries and or affiliates in accordance with appropriate local legislation and regulation. Deutsche Bank AG is subject to comprehensive supervision by the European Central Bank, by Germany's Federal Financial Supervisory Authority and by Germany's Central Bank. Brokerage services in the United States are offered through Deutsche Bank Securities Incorporated, a broker-dealer and registered investment advisor which conducts investment banking and securities activities in the United States. Deutsche Bank Securities Incorporated is a member of FINRA, NYSE and SIPC. Lending and banking services in the United States are offered through Deutsche Bank Trust Company Americas, member FDIC, and other members of the Deutsche Bank Group. The products, services, information, and or materials referred to within this podcast may not be available for residents of certain jurisdictions. Copyright 2022 Deutsche Bank AG and or its subsidiaries. All rights reserved. This podcast may not be used, reproduced, copied or modified without the written consent of Deutsche Bank AG.